Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora e welcome to Country Life, I'm Duncan Smith. No mai whakaronga mai ki te Aotai Whenua, ko Sally Round tēnei. Today, from cocaine to cacao, the Peruvian farmers helping tempt local luxury chocolate lovers. We're moving a herd of Red Devon cattle with a police detective turned farmer who's faced many challenges on difficult land in Tairafati. And later, a South Canterbury farmer from Romania tells us about being chased by wolves and other tales. But first to a roundup of the week's news from our rural news team, Sally Murphy's in Ototahi Christchurch. And what's happening on the campaign trail, Sally? Well, the National Party's promising to eliminate resource consents for building water storage on farmland, but a consent would still be required to take water. It's also proposing removing consent requirements to plant commercial fruit and vegetables and greater penalties for biosecurity breaches. Any policies from other parties announced this week? No, not this week, but the agricultural spokespeople from the top five parties did clash at a debate in Waikato this week. They covered farm inflation, milk prices, the ute tax, carbon farming, compounding regulations and farmer confidence. Here's Labor's Damien O'Connor. I went back and had a look at the confidence surveys over the years. Funnily enough, uh, since we got into government, they've all been negative. That's in spite of actually there being a $9 milk price and average $12 per kilogram for lamb. So what would that be? I hope it's not a bias against what governments do. Ex-Andrew Hoggard had this to say on whether there is a climate emergency. Is it happening? Yes. Is it an emergency? Is everything falling around, down around us? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, there is climate change happening. I don't like the idea of everyone screaming it's an emergency, that's the end of the world. The emissions trading scheme came under attack for encouraging farmers to convert productive land into pine. New Zealand First's Mark Patterson wanting to fight back with some more regulation or red tape. The problem with the ETS is it's an artificial construct by the government. It needs to be at a certain level to drive emissions reduction by polluters but it's far too profitable. It's a licence to print money for landowners and investors that want to put trees in. So we actually, this is one area where we actually do need some red tape. National's Todd McClay accused the Greens of calling farmers villains, Eugenie Sage saying that isn't true. What the Greens do is highlight the issues and the solutions that we want. And it's interesting that National's talking about outcomes. The new National Built Environment Bill is all Act is all about outcomes, and yet National wants to completely overturn it and all of the work that that involves. We need to recognise when there are environmental challenges, whether it's fresh water, whether it's climate, and we need to tackle those. Todd McClay went on to tell the farmer-friendly audience his party has the answers. The way that we fix this is to build trust back into farmers, stop trying to run farms for Wellington, and understand that farmers care about the land, they want to do well, get costs down upon them, don't force more and more regulations, and when you need a rule, make it a good rule that focuses on the outcome, not a costly rule that just burdens them. And it seems most of the audience agreed, many saying after the debate they are voting national. Moving on from politics, a new project set to breed the sheep of the future. What's that all about? Well, sheep with finer wool, a greater tolerance for hot weather, lower methane emissions and top quality meat traits is the aim of a new seven-year programme called Sheep of the Future. The $10.5 million project is a collaboration between state-owned farming company Pamu, its subsidiary Focus Genetics, also Ag Research and the Ministry for Primary Industries. Palmu Chief Executive Mark Leslie told us the groundbreaking programme aims to transform sheep production. We think we can also play a critical role to actually support the industry and some of those challenges that have been faced and 
whether it's the lower methane emissions or whether they're providing sheep that meet the different um, climate needs in the park, I think that's a critical role we can play in terms of supporting that broader industry. And Sally, you have some news on the embattled Taratahi Agricultural Training Centre near Masterton. That's right, a potential buyer has been found for the Wairarapa facility, which was placed into liquidation back in 2018, owing $24 million. The latest report from liquidators, Grant Thornton, says a sale and purchase agreement has been presented to the interested buyers. Once that's back from the unnamed party, it will be sent to Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor. Mr O'Connor says he will only allow Taratahi to transfer out of Crown hands if the property and facilities remain in agricultural education. And there's encouraging signs on the vegetable front. There is. Spring supplies are plentiful and massive price hikes of a year ago are not on the cards. Jerry Prendergast of the grower industry group United Fresh says good winter planting conditions are resulting in a wide range of vegetables ready for harvest right now. When it comes to uh, leafy greens, a definite easing in price and uh, what we will see is our next food price index for vegetables not sitting in those high percentiles. There'll still be a slight increase, but from the same period last year where we saw the big jumps going up in value and holding that period have caught up. So the, the continual rise is not um, maintaining and we're seeing more of a uh, flattening or easing of the vegetable prices. Now, Federated Farmers wants an inquiry into rural banking. Yes, that's because a survey the group did back in May showed the average interest rate for farmers was 7.84% and average overdraft interest rates were at 10.07%. Spokesperson Richard McIntyre says rates have climbed since then and rural inflation is sitting between 14 and 17%. Now that compares to the country's average of 6%. Farmers are talking to us a lot about how they've noticed that the banks are charging them higher interest rates for their rural lending than they are for residential lending. But there seems to be no clear explanation as to why. So we want to know if the higher interest rates for farmers are increasing banks' profits or cross-subsidising a much more competitive market for home loans. And we'd also like to understand what role regulation is playing in these higher interest rates farmers are paying. Mr McIntyre says debt levels are far higher for agribusinesses than for residential borrowers, with farmers carrying around $63 billion of debt. Let's take a dip into the weather now, and after a really wet winter, conditions are starting to dry out in parts of the country. They are. A month of sunny weather has brought some relief to cyclone-hit farmers on the east coast. However, they actually now need a bit of rain to push a healthy spring flush. In Wairoa, farming leader Alan Newton says there's been a little bit of grass growth in the last month, but not enough. He says farmers are after some warm rain to sprout pasture growth to boost feed levels. They're quite run down on most places due to slips and just the very, very wet season that we've had. During those wet, cold times, the cattle ate a lot of grass. You've just got to buy feed in. For people in the in the backcountry areas, they can't buy feed in because they can't get the feed to the livestock for a start. A lot of tracks are still not open. Alan Newton says East Coast farmers are resilient and will find a way to make it work. And lastly, Sally, we do love our bananas, don't we? Global supplies are lower than normal. Will New Zealanders have to go without? That's right, Kiwis love bananas. In fact, we're the highest consumers of the fruit in the world, eating 18 kilos per person each year. But due to weather and disease, global production is down by around 6%. Foodstuff's Bridget Corson has just returned from visiting suppliers in the Philippines and she says good relationships are vital to securing enough bananas. We've seen uh, prices ease up over the uh, last year as a result of supply being tighter. Hoping for a better season, with El Nino and coming in, that weather pattern uh, that will uh, heat things up in Ecuador uh, with the weather and then we'll see slightly better supply. And that's the Rural News Wrap with our reporter Sally Murphy from Ototahi Christchurch. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. Our guest this week will get your mouth watering for chocolate as he takes us through his intrepid time in Peru. You may recall we talked to Jonty Tatham not long after he started making chocolate from scratch in the farm kitchen where, as a boy and keen cook, he had helped feed the farm workers. 
Jonty has recently returned from meeting the Peruvian farmers who grow the cacao beans he uses for his chocolate. Leah Tebbett caught up with him and first asked, why beans from Peru? As a point of difference, I really wanted to lean into Peru and sourcing from Peru to try and showcase to people that chocolate is very similar to fine wine. There's lots of different genetics. There's lots of different uh, factors that go into uh, the final bar of chocolate that you eat. And Peru was the, the perfect choice for it because uh, in Peru, there's an unparalleled amount of genetic biodiversity as well as cacao producers in general. There's hundreds to choose from. So, yeah, it made perfect sense. And so obviously the sustainability element of, of the cacao in Peru sort of won you over? There, there are a lot of factors to consider with Peru, but that's definitely a big one of them. For sure, I think in, in the chocolate world still, there's still a lot of uh, unjust activities, uh, you could say, occurring. And if I was going to invest, you know, put my heart and soul into something, I didn't want it to be putting it into chocolate that's not ethically sourced. And Peru is one of the safest countries in general to, to source cacao from. They're the world's leading producer of organic cacao. I think they also have one of the highest average rates of pay for farmers. And everything that I had suspected was confirmed when I went there and visited many, many farms, saw the states people were living in. And, yeah, I'm very glad I made that choice now. Because, mm, as you mentioned, you, you've just come back from Peru. You spent a month there um, and came back at the beginning of August. But was that also the first time that, that you'd been there and been able to witness you know, the, the beginning of your own chocolate journey? Indeed, indeed, yeah. So I've been very eager to get to Peru since we say I launched in 2020. Long story short, we finally got the opportunity and I was able to see uh, with my own eyes everything that sort of takes place. Over in Peru, it's a little bit different. The areas that I went, I mean, there's lots of different climates um, that they produce cacao in, but the, the main one that I spent the most time in was up in the north in uh, what's known as the San Martin Department. And there it's technically in the Amazon Basin. Um, and so it's very hot, very humid. Um, there's a lot of jungle everywhere. And the farmers there, their average size is two hectares, so quite a bit smaller than uh, in New Zealand. Typically, the farmers will produce a variety of different either fruits or vegetables, or sometimes both, and occasionally they'll have some animals like some cattle, but it's pretty rare. Typically, you would expect to see they have some tall trees uh, in their section of farm. The tall trees are there to provide shade for the, the cacao trees and the other trees that are growing. And then underneath those, they can either have banana trees uh, and then cacao trees and then maybe some smaller ones and they would harvest all their cacao, and then they would give it to a local fermentary or sell it on to a co-op, and that's how they make their money. And like I said, most of them are organic, um, and so pretty much every farm that I went to had its own way of, uh, I guess, operating the ecosystem or operating the, the farm in sort of a, a rotational way where they would use the leftover cacao pods uh, break them up into fertilizer to use for another vegetable that they were growing, and and vice versa. So sort of everything played into played into itself um, over there, which was very cool. Didn't really know what I was getting into when I went over there, but it was yeah, it was truly the trip of a lifetime, and it completely opened my eyes to to the world of cacao and South America as well. Yeah, because I mean, you mentioned that a lot of the farmers were organic. Is that by the fact that they kind of just have no other option to be organic? And I mean, what are the sort of challenges that they're facing by being farmers in, in Peru? Say if you went in the past 20 or 30 years ago, a lot of the farmers that are now farming cacao were probably farming coca, which is the leaf that's used to make cocaine. And what they were doing was exporting it uh, over to Colombia where it was made into cocaine and then shipped around the world. And San Martin, which is right up the top of Peru, is very close to Colombia, essentially. So that whole area was renowned for, for producing coca leaves. And since the government has started to make some real positive change, they offered to subsidize the production of cacao and coffee. And so these farmers have basically got rid of their coca plantations and have started planting cacao and coffee or various other things and that has I guess allowed them to to be in a much more stable position not necessarily at the mercy of criminals who are wanting to to you know exploit them and I think with regards to the whole organic thing my perception of it is that 
they they produce their cacao in an organic fashion, not because they have to, uh, but because that's the only way they know how, and that's the only way that they have done for for many many years. Um, so to them, it's it's natural. It makes sense to, like I say, use use the pods from from the cacao once they once they've been used to crush them up and make fertilizer, and that's just something that comes naturally to them. John T. Tatham of Lucid Chocolatier, who makes chocolate at the family sheep and beef farm in coastal Wairarapa. Farmers' markets are brimming with hard-working food producers who devote a lot of time, passion and sheer hard work to filling their baskets, chillers and tables every week at stalls around Aotearoa. So how do they bring kai directly to you from the farm paddock? Well, not without a lot of challenges along the way. We're heading to the Waimata Valley near Gisborne on a drizzly day in May. Lee Askew is on a muddy farm track, moving a herd of young Red Devons, beef cattle, which Lee rears for her artisan meat brand, Shemshi Red Devon Beef. We have got last year's calves here who have been weaned now for uh, a couple of months. And uh, we're still in the training process, but we're getting there. They're, um, they're coming to call most of the time. There's a few leaders in the group which are helping. What do you need to train them for? Um, just to be able to move them around easily by, by calling them. I, I do have uh, Sammy, my retired farm dog, uh, but I do prefer to, um, especially with the young ones, just to be able to move them without the dog. Yeah, as long as they get into the routine that they know when I turn up in the Kubota and that, right, we're moving, we're moving to, to, to new grass, seems to work. How I got into farming to start with was was not um, normal, the normal route, I suppose, because I was born in St Albans, which is 20 minutes north of London. But I always, like, got out of the city and started riding, so I went out in the countryside from about seven years on, onwards, just drawn to, to the countryside as opposed to the city life. My auntie Joy actually said, she said, you were born with wellies on, obviously gumboots over here. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it was agriculture, um, which to start with would be to get to agricultural college. Did an HND, Higher National Diploma in Agriculture. Had a year break and came out to New Zealand. And I was milking dairy cows in Matamata and then up in Dargaville. New Zealand just became, it was just part of me, I suppose. Um, I came back and um, after the year, did a diploma in farm management, but um, my my dad, he always knew. He said, "I knew you would end up in New Zealand." Lee worked as a dairy consultant in the UK before her life took a different turn. Come on, Willy Wonka. I took the strange uh, plunge into joining the police force in Devon and Cornwall. And I was a police officer in the UK for ten years, five years as, as a detective. New Zealand police were recruiting. UK officers. I thought, wow, I've just got to go for this. This it's, it's fate. And that was in 2007 when we emigrated out here. Lee and her late husband Brian bought a few hectares and Red Devon cattle seemed the easy choice. I didn't want to go the traditional Angus route. I wanted something different. Uh, the Red Devons are very good foragers, amazing temperament and the whole point of it I suppose is they do produce beautiful beef as well to eat. You can find Lee's meat at the Gisborne Farmers Market. She deals with the whole cuts of beef at her home kitchen after it's been butchered in Hamilton. Oh what have we got here? There's this huge slab of rolled rib. This um, is this primal uh, cut. This will be destined for the um, slow cook tomorrow uh, and uh, that will be served up as rib roast burgers, slow cooked pulled rib roast burgers on Saturday morning at the Gisborne Farmer's Market and then um, the uh, Shemshi delicious statements burgers which are a real favourite for, for um, my regulars um, and a breakfast burger which is sausage, egg, free range egg from the market 
um, onions and cheese. So the, the market, it's a huge day for you. Yes. It's How much time does it take to prepare for, for it? And it's a weekly thing, isn't it? It is. Um, it's probably throughout the whole week, different things, obviously, whether it's cleaning up from the Saturday, um, making sure you put your bun order in on time because that's absolutely crucial. As you get nearer to the Saturday, there's, also, there's burger pressing that needs to be done. Um, and then Friday is town day to pick up the buns, onions if I need to. Obviously, do the slow cook um, and load the trailer. Uh, and obviously, Saturday morning, it's up and go. And we start selling at 9.30. Every two months, Lee takes two of her precious beef cattle for slaughtering. And they're carefully handled from woe to go. So I take my beef in my own stock trailer over to the Holy Cow in Cambridge. The, the Holy Cow has a micro abattoir and, and their philosophy is the same as mine and that is to reduce the stress on the animals as much as possible. So that starts actually with two, three weeks before I even take the animals away. Um, I'll have those two on their own in the paddock um, and I'll be feeding them a mix of um, uh, usually soaked oats with molasses, just as like a, a lolly. Um, and they get obviously used to me coming with the buckets of food for them. And the, 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 the reason that I'm feeding them the molasses in particular is it's obviously it's a high-energy product and that lifts their blood sugar levels because in times of stress when adrenaline is high... The, um, the glycogen within the muscles gets depleted. And if you've got a lack of glycogen when an animal is slaughtered, there is an insufficient level of, uh, of lactic acid produced, which actually preserves the meat. So the low level of lactic acid causes the, the meat to be alkaline, and that's where it gets slimy and, and it won't age properly. Um, so that's sort of a consequence of the stress. But obviously, from an animal welfare point of view, I want my animals to be as unstressed as possible. I'm not normally a nanny driver, but I am when I've got my cattle in the back. Um, so they walk off and they have a drink and they um, settle down for the night. And then in, in the morning, Tom will just individually bring them round, process them. They're completely unaware of what's happened to the other one. And then the other one's brought round and the same happens. The consequence of that is that the beef is, is completely different quality and flavour as well. Back on the steep muddy track, we're following the cows to their next paddock. What do we do now? Go for it. Go for it. Yeah, I'm ready to go. I'll stand back in case you know, I get yeah. slammed by the mud. Self-sufficiency has always been uh, a, a love of mine uh, from when I was a kid. Again, I was drawn to the good life. I'd this was all the sorts. TV series, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, and mm. I just loved the fact that they were living in suburb, suburbia um, but turned their garden into the veg plot. They raised pigs, and that was like the first inspiration for me, I think. The number one challenge for me was... Um, when 
my darling Bri was uh, not himself. That actually was dementia, early onset dementia. Um, and we had just bought this place here. So we'd moved from five hectares to 66 hectares. We were living in a caravan, waiting for the house to be, to be built. And I was working full time with the police, with the farm as well. Uh, and it was getting to the point where it wasn't safe to leave, leave Brian in the caravan and come out on the farm. And it, it wasn't working bringing him with me on the farm either because things would go wrong. Um, and so, I mean, that was, a, that was a pretty dark time. Off you go. He was able to go to the local um, Ryman Kirudkanoa on a daily basis when I was working so I could take him into work, uh, take him there. And he thought he was working, which was great, because uh, at the time he, was, he wasn't even 60. And obviously his dementia progressed to the point where he was full-time in Kirudkanoa and he passed away three years ago. I was always the, the lead with the agriculture but he would be obviously on hand to give me a hand to help a cow if it was in trouble calving uh, or, or like we're going to be doing, moving cattle around. Um, it was always my dream. It was a no-brainer for me that I had to carry on. He would have wanted me to do that anyway. <laughs> Hello, 145. one of the beautiful yes. uh, Red Devon just coming up and really having a good look at us yes. in the side by side. Yes, that's one of my little girls. Pedigree girls. Yeah. Are you doing a breeding program as well? That yes, I do register the um, uh, the, the pedigree girls. The boys, because I'm a small farm and I don't have um, that many paddocks, I have to um, obviously desex them. Their their steers for ease of management. So there's only one boy, Christoph, on the farm at the moment. One entire boy. Yeah. And how is he to handle? What's the temperament like? I, you have to actually remind yourself he is a bull, um, because they 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 are big animals. Um, but he has never even looked at me sideways. He's he's a great boy, yeah. And he's got 100% conception rate, two years running. <laughs> Good on you for keeping going with this whole project. What do you see, if any, similarities between policing and farming? <laughs> Are there any? Ooh, um, well, how has your policing variety. background helped? I suppose variety would be a definite one because you don't you don't know one day to the next within working in the police what's what's going to come along during the day, um, and you the same with with farming you don't know so you're not going to get bored in either either profession. <laughs> I guess you're good at solving problems too. Yes, that you have to be um, thinking outside the box. For ten and a half years out of eleven with with the New Zealand police, I was working with the child protection team. So I was a forensic interviewer with with the team. So I'm not quite sure how how that relates to the farming side of things. Coming home to the farm was really healthy. After having a day which could be quite obviously upsetting. And I was so busy as well, that, that definitely did help. Former police officer and detective turned farmer Lee Askew of Shemshi Red Devon Beef, moving her herd on a muddy track in the Waimata Valley near Gisborne. She's hoping to become even more self-sufficient after this year's cyclones with more solar panels, a brand new chiller and swish new generator. Lee has about 50 Red Devons, including one called Willy Wonka. They are, as their name suggests, a beautiful deep red. Now we're heading just south of Timaru to a coastal farm at St Andrews. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is in the yard with Remus Coman and his partner Joy. He's farmed there for 10 years. The property was previously owned by John and Lorraine Williams and they spoke to Country Life just after they sold the property. For Remus, life on the farm has had its ups and downs, but it's his slice of paradise. If we are quiet and listen to the birds around, 
early morning there are different birds and later on the ducks will start to <laughs> screaming around making their nests and hatching the eggs and yeah yeah it's it's really nice and i have my own beef uh, every year we rear three four calves and we keep for our freezer which i fully enjoyed and now recently we got 10 chooks we have our own eggs mm. yeah we get out from the supermarket hassle to uh, find eggs when it's possible Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, um, when John and Lorraine were farming here, they were farming sheep and they had crops. What changes did you put in place when you first moved onto the farm? Straight away, uh, first change was to transition to cattle grazing. So the water system, I changed it uh, pronto in the first year, adding uh, extra like 200,000 litres of storage plus about 25 uh, big 1,500-litre troughs, which also are good storage. And, uh, yeah, we changed to cattle grazing. You've made quite big changes here, then. Well, with a 4 million debt, how much it was in the beginning, uh, was no, way, no other way to survive in my eyes unless you put your ass to work. So with cattle grazing, or cow wintering, and some young stock for the summer, I'm surviving Mm. So a big investment, and before that you were 50-50 share milking? Before that, yes, we, uh, I share milk since 2008, 50-50, uh, starting with a low number, like 500-something cows, and then going up to 1,200 cows, and mm. then going back down to 500, and then uh, settling here. And uh, when you first came here, you were... With Magda, is that with right? Magda, yeah, was my, my wife. And uh, we done really a lot of work in dairy farming. And uh, she's still farming now at Orari yeah. uh, with all the cows, the 500 cows she still have. Oh, so and, you split uh, the farm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Basically, she keeps all the dairy operation, which we, we had, and I took over the, the debt. <laughs> Did that end up working out okay for both of you? Working up okay, yeah. It took a bit of negotiation between us, but uh, luckily we were still in very good terms. Uh, we are still good friends. And, yeah, I hope that she'll um, do good this year when the payout is really shit. Mm. Yeah. So you have your own cattle, and dairy farmers bring their stock here in the winter to graze as well? No, I don't have my own cattle since three years ago when uh, I split the business. So basically now I'm just a grazier. In the last three years I'm just grazing for other dairy farmers. Which is quite nice because you get some time off, I guess. I can get some time (laughs) off, but uh, always I find something interesting to do because I have like uh, 20 projects around. When you have time you have to fill up your time with something which which makes you happy. Yes. What uh, makes you happy? And, uh, well, I have to be happy if I can uh, go fishing. Mm. I have an old car, which I always work on it to keep it running. Yeah. Joy makes me happy. <laughs> My daughter makes me happy. So if I can spend some time with them to make them happy, yeah. Joy, are you a farmer? No, not really. I just uh, finished my university in Thailand and yeah. That met my boyfriend. Yeah, he invited me come to in New Zealand to visit him. Yeah, and I like yes. I like here like a slow life, not busy. And first time here, I meet my family and meet my friends so much. But after that, I yeah, just I like here. I you've got I, used to it. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yes. and now I'm happy. And you've been out this morning. With Remus on the farm? Oh, not really. Normally, he go by himself, and if he need help, he call. But my my routine is like a go to feed cubs, go to feed chook, and we have a uh, hawks. Oh, you've got pigs as well. Hawk? Yeah. No, hawk. 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 Bird. Big bird. Oh, you've got a hawk. He got it. <laughs> yes, I uh, like. Three weeks ago, uh, in the in the kale paddock, two hawks were fighting, and I suppose the y- young one wa- was really bad, beaten up, and full of oh. blood, and couldn't fly. And it was quite a frosty morning. I grabbed it and uh, got it home, and I'm feeding the hawk every day since. Is it doing okay? It's doing very good. I think soon will be ready to fly. 
could I have a look at the hawk? Yeah, let's yeah, go, yeah, let's, yeah, go. Yeah, let's yeah, go. go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, the last lot of Jersey cows went home. I had uh, 300 co Jersey cows this winter, plus the other cows. Mm. And uh, in the paddock where the cows were, today I found a calf. It was sleeping, sleeping somewhere and wake up today. Where is my mom? Where is my yeah. mom? And yeah. Oh, here it is. Yeah, it is, it is gorgeous. Jesse heard. Tiny. Beautiful, beautiful yes. and strong calves. Yes, how old will this calf be? It's like 12 hours old. Is that all? Yep, the cows left yesterday. No one spotted it in yep. the paddock. I, I miss it, yep. And just behind is my hawk. He's oh. like a king, look at him. So the hawk was in a fight? Was in a fight, the old one was full of blood on, on his head, couldn't fly. And now he's looking much better, eating a lot of meat every day. And yeah, soon we'll, we'll, we'll go out flying. He's in an enclosure in the barn. Are you able to pick him up? He's very uh, you have to be very careful with the hawks because their claws, they are so strong, goes all the way to, in the flesh to the bone. So you need special protection for the hands. And when you pick up, make sure the claws don't, don't get you. Yeah. How long has he been, been here for? About uh, well, 10 days, two weeks. Now he eats from, we put the meat here. Yes. And he comes and eats from, basically from my hand. He's quite big. Yeah, he's, he's good size. He's, he's young. Big. So when you release him, will you just take him out here into the farmyard or will you take him to where you found him? Well, I, I found him just in the park beside oh, here. Oh, just right there. Yeah. Just, just over the fence. So this is, yep. this is his home? Yep. Very good to have hawks in the farm because they clean all the dead uh, rabbits and birds and they basically eat all the dead animals. And in, in the same cage, I had uh, three, owl, three owls uh, last year, which I found in a broken gum tree, which fell with the wind. And their mothers was nowhere. I just picked up the, the babies and bring them here and feed them till they were big and they fly away and they still sleep somewhere in, in Tishid. They've made this their home. Yeah, yeah, they are still around here. Yes. You are from Romania? Yes, born in Romania and live in Romania many years. Done the university there in farming, basically. I done a master in, in cattle breeding, actually. So oh. that comes in handy now with what you're doing. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I have quite a good base and understanding of many things. And not only about the farming, also. We learn like a lot about viruses and bacteria. Yeah. Right now, what is the difference, do you think, between farming systems in Romania compared to, you know, how things are done here? Farming system in Romania, they were very good till 1990. Very good. After that, with all the capitalism and the democracy coming in, basically everything was going bankrupt and uh, all the farm, the big farms closed and... Farming went maybe 10 steps back for a good 20 years. And uh, nowadays it's going further again. Like, for example, last July, Romania was the biggest grain exporter in Europe. So it's, it's picking up again. But still it's hard to farm in Romania because you are under European uh, regulation and you have to comply with those. Mm. And so there are heaps of rules. Heaps of rules, but also heaps of sub subventions. Uh, lots of money are pushed into, into the farm and farmers, help them to start, help, help them to survive in tough uh, periods. They get lots of support. Yes, they get uh, good support, good support. And, and I guess uh, some of that money goes towards um, environmental changes. That's right, that's right. If a farmer chooses to do nothing to uh, part of his farm and just let it grow wild, he's got a good amount of money to cover basically all the income from that land from the UE. It's uh, like uh, 12,000 euro for a hectare for a year. It's a good amount of money. So if you want to let your paddocks go fallow, yes. for a year you can? Yeah. No, no fertilizer, no spraying. You are allowed to do two cuts of hay or silage, but without any application of anything, uh, no grazing. What a big difference compared to here. Uh, here, farming is the, the core of the country uh, in New Zealand. Uh, farming is the main, the main industry, I'll say, in, in New mm. Zealand and uh, have to be supported much more than it is. Uh, like in the COVID times, there was nothing going in the, in the country besides farming. For two years, New Zealand was basically bankrupt without the farming. 
How much land have you got here? Uh, there are roughly 196 hectares. I made another like 10 hectares of forest and I lease uh, the ocean on another like 30 hectares on the ocean side. Oh, does your farm go right down to the sea? Yes, right. I have like a five case of uh, ocean frontage. And uh, I had lucerne, uh, maize for silage. Now I have 25 hectares in uh, oats there. And after I harvest the oats, I have to decide if I go back in lucerne or put some uh, maize silage again. Yes, yes. Here the phone rings. Hi, Jeff. Good, good. How's going? Yeah, yeah. I'll take I'll take everything what's what's ready you now and 40, 45, uh, how many they can fit, you know? Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Bye. It was the owner of the cows to tell me that if it's possible for me to draft the cows which are ready to calve because he is busy with calving. So I choose now from the cow, I have like 200, I choose like 40 of them, uh, look into the other size. When the others start to go a bit bigger, they spring up and they are means ready to calve. And Joy, you'll be helping out? Of course. Yeah. I follow them to the cattleas and after that, his job, because he knows better than me. Lovely dog. Is he actually a good farm dog? No. Of cows. Now we go towards the old wool shed. The wool shed on the farm is one of the oldest wool sheds in the region. Uh, maybe in Canterbury, I'm not sure. It's, it was built in like 1860s. Actually, that's one of my projects to start to do some work at the roof because I already <laughs> bought the sheets here, sitting to replace yeah. some broken sheets in the roof. Now we are driving down towards a paddock by a creek and we can see a Frisian cow there and she's just had a calf. It's a Frisian heifer, first time calver. Yesterday she did calve with joy. She had a big, big, big calf. We pull it out slowly. It's, now she's got another calf. So we've got two calves with her, very nice. And they are already standing up? Yep, yep. They are uh, happy campers together. The calves goes for my freezer. And uh, here on the left, I think is the only one surviving in, not sure in what area, like a old horseman uh, cottage accommodation. In the paddock on the other side of the creek, yeah, is, as Remus has said, a very old cottagey shed, yeah. which is still standing. A bit of history there. Yeah, yeah. Here with the, the people in charge of horses who used to sleep and uh, keep... 30 horses in the other side, and now it's one of my beehive sheds. And since I bought the farm, I built three kilometers of new tracks in the farm. I found very good gravel in the farm, and uh, a local contractor done a very good work to get the gravel out and uh, spread it and build the new tracks. And we've come up to the Top of the farm, really, and it is a wonderful view. We can see the sea, we can see lots of farms in the distance. We can't quite see Timaru, can we? Uh, not quite, but in the, in the night we see the light, yep. the, the lights from Timaru. This paddock I worked yesterday, I grab it after the kale. What's some um, going in here? Uh, here we'll go further a bit. It's a very good feed, uh, it's got more energy and gets the cows much more fatter than uh, the kale but uh, comes with some risks in the beginning, especially in the first four weeks. Is that because when they first go on fodder beet, they can get a bit bloated? Uh, no, it's uh, the, the sugars from the beet, it's too much for the cow uh, body and uh, they get acidosis. The blood gets very acid and uh, creates a metabolic disorder, which is called acidosis. And it's, it's, it's very easy to prevent it but also it's very easy to, to get it if you don't follow the rules. Do farmers in Romania use for a bit? Yes but uh, basically Joy open the gate please. In Romania the fodder bit is smashed by machine and you feed it like a noodle like a fresh long noodle mixed with straw. Why do they do that? Because uh, fodder bit uh, it's uh, very easy to 
preserve for the winter and give it in the in the barns in the sheds. And uh, Remus, you don't often use fertilizer. I cut down more than half of the use. Fertilizer goes mainly for the winter crops and only one application per year for the grass sometime in just before spring when I get the most benefit of it. And basically that's it. It's, it's about uh, 50 units of nitrogen for the grass uh, per year. Can you see yourself stopping using fertilizer one day? Yes, I, th- I think so. I think so. Slowly by slowly, I think the soil uh, have to look after itself if you give it what needs with some lime and some other uh, dressings which are not rely so much on nitrogen or uh, phosphorus or uh, other chemicals. Soil tends to regenerate itself, but takes uh, maybe 10 years to recover, regenerate and fight its own uh, biology, you know, to, to grow. And also the grass species, I think we rely too much on ryegrass, like a bit more cogs for the tall fescue and other, other uh, drought-resistant plants, I think are more suitable. Yeah. So it's good to mix it up and have some grasses that have deeper roots. That's right, that's right. And good winter growth too. Mm. So when you've finished uh, winter grazing, what happens to these, to these paddocks? Uh, supplements for the winter and they, they are still in a grazing rotation because I have a, a young stock for the summer. There are 220 uh, R1s, R2 now, and in December another like 220 will, will come, will be like 400. Uh, maybe I get another 150, uh, 200 or so, it will be like six, 700 uh, young stock here. Plus, even the carryovers will be like 800 animals for the summer, yeah. but in the winter the numbers doubles basically. Because that's your main paycheck. That's right. That's main paycheck. Uh, yeah. Here it's a bit of uh, leftover from my straw. Always good to have leftover straw. That's right. Last week, uh, over the last winter, I used 1,300 bales of straw and 1,200 bales of silage, and I have left like. 100 bales of straw and 60 bales of silage left. Yeah, it was very expensive to buy it last uh, summer. Oh, very expensive the the straw bell. <laughs> How much like is one of those straw bells? 75, 80 dollars one bell. Yeah, straw and silage. You have to have uh, something left, just in case. You know, it's good to over budget and under budget. Here are the cows which I'm gonna bring at the kettle yards. And we've just come to a paddock of winter feed where the uh, last herd of cattle are. And they'll be going away this afternoon, back to the farm. Yes, this afternoon some of the last cows are going back, not many left. And yeah, little by little we'll be quiet and I'll enjoy a late cappuccino at home, not working early. (laughs) I might just take a picture of the cattle if that's okay. Hello. Lovely. Thank you. Now, I can see you've got a really impressive tattoo on your arm. What does it mean? Uh, that's, that's me, basically, walking alone on a ladder, going up, up, up. And uh, that's a very Romanian traditional wolf. So the old flag in Romania was like a wolf. Oh, the wolf. I can see the wolf there. The wolf, yeah, yeah. And some forest where the wolves lost to be. And... Up there, I have more. It's like an old man uh, with so many things in his mind, and yeah, it's hard to choose which one is good, which one is bad. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned about the wolf on your arm. You are from the Transylvanian region of Romania, which is very hilly, isn't it? Very mountainous. Very hilly, heaps and heaps of forests. And there are wolves. There are lots there. of wild wolves. And I myself, I was chased by wolves twice in my life in the winter. I had a wolf tracking my <laughs> my footsteps and in the snow, and I fear a bit of for my life. How did that happen? I was very young, actually. I was with a friend biking around Sibiu in my old city in biking towards the zoo and the zoo was like a 10 case away from the city and covered with snow in the winter and forest and we hear something behind we look there are the wolves like a, a pack of wolves not many but like six seven wolves running on my bike tracks 
and it was like chasing you chasing us yeah and luckily we reached the zoo and jumped the fence into the zoo end up in uh, was like a deer and the stags huge area and we just <laughs> feel safe there Oh my gosh, how scary. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were scary. You feel the adrenaline rush a bit and you push yourself hard to the limits to escape. Well, you have no worries about wolves here. No, no, <laughs> not worry about wolves, but many Romanians ask me, what predators in the fun? Because many follows me on my Facebook and ask a lot of questions about predators, what's dangerous and so on. It cannot believe actually is nothing. <laughs> Uh, what what possums and hawks and uh, magpies <laughs> can make some damage. <laughs> if you've got family or friends who are listening to this program, what would you like to say to them in Romanian? Oh, you Romanian, you got me. Just a quick message because people will be able to listen to this, you know, online. Vă ascult, vă 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 doresc. Să fiți fericiți și vă aștept, vă aștept pe la mine pe aici. Oricând veniți în Noua Zeelandă, sunt bucuros de voi să veniți pe aici. That was South Canterbury farmer Remus Coman. Cosmo was also chatting with his partner Joy Tipicorn Prajit. To see photos from the day and a video of Remus releasing the rehabilitated hawk, go to our webpage. The address is rnz.co.nz slash country life. And on that page you can listen again to any of the stories uh, that you've heard today or delve into the archives for more. And do send us your feedback. We love getting it. Email us at country at rnz.co.nz. Kuina mo tenewa. That's it for now. Kakite ano. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.